Brooks, Daftree Leyland. And as the planetary quarantine enters its fourth month, mass rioting continues in India, South Africa, and parts of Central America as they struggle to deal with the total collapse of their economies, the result of lost income usually generated by trade with other worlds. Across the planet, spaceports normally crowded with travelers stand empty. Starships grounded by military order. Even orbital transports have been banned, given the government's concern that they could be used to ferry Earth citizens to waiting starships and carry the Drock virus beyond Earth. In the Vatican, Pope Bernadette II led a global day of prayer and fasting. She called for churches everywhere to unite in the scientific community's attempt to find a medical cure. Current efforts include using the Ranger fleet to search for possible leads on other planets, which are then investigated by the deep-range military research vessel Excalibur, launched shortly after the Drock War. That opening feels somewhat uncomfortable nowadays. The Babylon Project was a dream given form. J. Michael Straczynski's novel for television, Babylon 5, had managed to meet its targets. A five-year pre-planned science fiction television odyssey. A binge-worthy TV event before that was even a thing. It was not without its stumbles along the way. Less than impressive pilot episode, actors who had major storylines suddenly leaving due to falling outs, medical issues, or the usual creative differences and a truncated fourth season after it looked like year four would be the end. However, at the 11th hour a reprieve came from an unlikely source. The cable TV network TNT. TNT wanted to expand and hoped that Babylon 5 would bring them a new audience. JMS would get to complete his five-year plan, but at a cost. The fifth season would be on a reduced budget, and filmed with quicker turnaround times. A number of plans for the fifth season had to be dropped due to the budgetary limitations. Personally, I didn't think it was a bargain worth making. The fifth season is far weaker than what had come before. In addition to the fifth season, though, TNT also picked up a number of standalone Babylon 5 films. As with the fifth season, these were not as good as the show, more interested in filling in gaps in characterization caused by the changing lead actor, filming a two-part episode as a movie that was dropped from production, and other movies that didn't really feel like part of the whole. The biggest development, though, was TNT's announcement that Babylon 5 would have a sequel. Straczynski had always resisted the notion of a sequel to Babylon 5, saying the story was the story, and whilst there could be side quests, the overall saga would be done in those five seasons. Perhaps that's why I felt the movies felt tacked on. Still, a full-on sequel set in the B5 universe but telling a different story, well, that was something I could get behind. The Babylon Project Crusade, later renamed just Crusade was announced as a new series. It would have a story arc similar to Babylon 5, but not as all-consuming. Straczynski announced that whilst there would be an overall mission statement, this could change. The premise is timelier now than it was back then. A plague has ravaged the Earth, and within five years everyone will be dead. As such, the planet has been quarantined. The plague is a deliberate creation of a race known as the Drac. Captain Matthew Gideon is given a new, state-of-the-art battleship by EarthGov and, with his crew, is assigned to go forth, find new life and new civilizations, 
and boldly kick their asses until he finds a cure. Gideon is played by generic brown-haired leading man type Gary Cole, an actor you go to when Mark Singer or Kevin Bacon aren't available. He's since been usurped by Nathan Fillion. Crusade's entire existence feels like a massive screw you to Paramount Pictures. For years it was rumoured that Paramount ripped off Babylon 5 with Deep Space Nine, and one can't help but think Straczynski thought, two can play at that game, and pitched his Starship crew going boldly idea to the network. The show went into production, and almost immediately found itself in whatever the space equivalent of deep water is. TNT found that B5 viewers were indeed flocking to their network to watch Babylon 5, and then they were switching off. They weren't sticking around to try out their other words. Likewise, Babylon 5 was losing them the viewers they did have, who didn't care about this sci-fi malarkey, and switched off when Babylon 5 erred. This was not a sustainable position. As production on Crusade unfurled, TNT had many problems that just kept popping out of the woodwork. They didn't like the costumes, they didn't like the cast, they didn't like the lack of sex or violence. Hell, they just didn't like the show. Straczynski has refuted this, saying he believes TNT's constant demands to change the show wasn't down to any real dislike for it, merely that they just didn't want to pay for it. See, to get out of the contract, they had to provide clear evidence that Straczynski and co. didn't deliver the show they had paid for. Whatever the case, and it certainly seems that TNT wanted out, Crusade was doomed from the start. It was cancelled before a single episode aired. It could have been the highest rated show in TNT's history, and it wouldn't made a blind bit of difference. They were erring a dead show. When Crusade did err, it was wildly out of sequence. Like Firefly a few years later, Crusade was battered by a network that didn't know or care what it had. As such, the first episode, Warzone, is an oddity. Written halfway through the show's run at the behest of TNT, who suddenly wanted a new first episode, despite the premise of the series being laid out in one of the TV movies, its erring first actually causes all kinds of continuity issues in terms of the repetition of some elements already laid out in that movie, entitled A Call to Arms. It's also the first show written following TNT's closing down of production, and as such, the uniforms are altered drastically, a continuity error that's never really adequately explained. And this episode ends up being a swaggering, macho, exposition-heavy introduction that contradicts events we'll later see, or have already seen, depending upon which order you watch these in. The opening credits are especially heavy-handed. Who are you? Matthew Gideon, Captain, attached to the Earth Alliance starship Excalibur. What do you want? To find a cure to the Drock Plague before it wipes out all life on Earth. Where are you going? Anywhere I have to. Who do you serve and who do you trust?
soon. And who do you trust? I mean, talk about signposting it. It's a wants to be the prisoner, but ends up yelling, This will all be important! To the viewer. It's especially galling as these lines are repeated at the end of the episode. Surely it would have been better to have the opening credits be without dialogue, just for this one show. The music, whilst different, for which kudos, is also just not very good. I mean, it's quite amazing how Crusade could be so ahead of the game here, clearly influencing both Firefly and Battlestar Galactica, and yet feel so leaden in execution. The opening of the episode is cliché-central. A fight breaks out on the super-duper starship Excalibur between the crew. Some are fine staying away from plague-ravaged Earth. Others think it's all a conspiracy to keep oppressing the people and want to return to somewhere that will mean certain death. Perfectly sensible to me. Gideon knocks the leader of this Mania Rebellion on his ass because rather than be a nuanced character, Gideon is a tough, no-nonsense stereotype, replete with heavy New York accent and brusque attitude. Having quelled this little insurrection, Gideon then goes on to Mars to meet up with Senator Tim Thomason, who tells Gideon he's been picked for this very important mission. We need the right ship and the right person to find that cure. The right ship is the Excalibur, prototype destroyer, top of the line. And that person is you, Captain. Well, I'm honored, but why me? There are others just as qualified. During your time captaining an Explorer-class vessel, you've come across more new alien life forms than anyone else in the fleet. There are half a dozen captains riding Explorer ships. The rest are either too old or too cautious. You're a dangerous man when you want to be captain, and right now we need a dangerous man. So, are you up to the job? Yes, sir. Will I be able to pick my own team? Some, yes. Some, no. This is a highly political situation back home. We've had to make certain compromises to get this show on the road. There's going to be a lot of people looking over your shoulder on this one, Captain. I understand, but just so we're clear, once we go, this is my command. I'll do whatever's necessary. If that means turning the entire galaxy upside down and shaking its pockets to see what falls out, that's what I'll do. I'm not subtle, I'm not pretty, and I'll piss off a lot of people along the way but I'll get the job done. Do whatever you have to do, Captain. Make sure Earth doesn't turn into this. As you can hear in that clip, this isn't some of Straczynski's finest dialogue. Although his adding of the line, we've had to make certain compromises to get this show on the road, is funny, as he's gone on record as saying that's how compromised he felt Crusade was. The rest of the episode is a by-the-numbers pilot show, something Straczynski hoped he could avoid, having laid most of the groundwork for the series in the previously mentioned B5 telefilm. The characters are introduced, including Daniel Day Kim, later to co-star on Lost and Hawaii Five-O, as Gideon's second-in-command John Matheson, a telepath. He's a figure of suspicion since the telepath wars, a massively foreshadowed and ballyhooed event in Babylon 5, that ultimately went unseen because of those aforementioned season 5 budgetary issues. 
In addition, we meet Dr. Sarah Chambers, Marjane Holden, and Max Eilerson, David Allen Brooks. Neither really get a lot to do due to the nature of this opening episode. Two characters are ported over from the aforementioned telefilm, Carrie Duboro as alien thief Durina and Edward Woodward's son Peter as the techno-mage Galen, the token man of mystery. Warzone isn't pretty. The effects look dated, especially when compared to shows made only a few years later, and the characters are straight-up stereotypes. But they were in Babylon 5, in the beginning, and they all developed nicely, so there's promise. Gary Cole leads the show admirably, although less macho posturing and more masculine intelligence, as per Shatner in Star Trek, Stuart in The Next Generation, or even Fillion in Firefly would have been appreciated. I'd be lying if I said I didn't like it, though. It's at least trying to be different. There's a scene set in space with no sound effects, still quite rare in genre telly, and the idea of a less altruistic Star Trek is a good one. The Firefly comparison continues into The Long Road. Galen and Gideon learn of a planet where humans who've lived there for a while have ended up living 15, 20 years longer than the average human lifespan. It's discovered that the water on the planet has a mineral that kills most viruses and enables the longevity of the populace. Earth has gone in all ham-fisted mining operations and started displacing the population to try and mine the mineral to hopefully cure the Drac Plague. Gideon and the Excalibur are sent in to find a peaceable solution. On the one hand, didn't we have enough of the Western planet backlot back in the original Battlestar Galactica? It's a very, very lazy shorthand for developing nation, and I expect better from Straczynski. The basic plot is also very familiar. People being displaced from their homeland by a more powerful people has been done to death in science fiction, both before and after Crusade. The main difference here is there is no metaphor with aliens being the displaced. Rather, this is humans versus humans, a clear commentary on colonialism. On the other hand, Edward Woodward, who shows up here as the renegade technomage Alwyn, is always a welcome presence, and seeing him going up against his son in a plummy accent contest is delightful. Woodward, both of them, can lean into the ham when necessary, and their distinguished way of dealing with things makes a nice contrast to the shoot-from-the-hip attitude of Earth Force. Straczynski's stylized dialogue seems to flow better from the mouths of Shakespearean actors than it does from the mouths of the pretty people who populate LA's central casting couch, as they have the stage training to pull it off. In fact, all credit to Gary Cole, who manages to stay the course even when Woodward Sr. is on full-on screen-stealing mode. It's the set design that lets this one down. It's cheap, cliched, TV sci-fi to just make a western planet, replete with six-gun saloons and ten-gallon hats, and leave it at that. And for me, it shows a distinct lack of imagination. I can accept it on the 70s Galactica, simply as the producers of that show weren't really science fiction gurus. And in Firefly, the aesthetic wasn't just the Old West, but a mishmash of that, Japanese culture, neon-strewn cities and backwaters. Here... It's just lazy. There's also some terrible effects work in the teaser. Gideon is playing basketball on a set enhanced by effects. However, in front of him, there are loads of extras working out and playing basketball and so on, but behind him, 
It's just an extended set that's empty. It's laughable that in this entire massive sports facility, everyone is crammed into the foreground because CGIing people would have been cheesy and expensive. In fact, as with the opening episode, the effects are dreadful, arguably worse than those seen in Babylon 5 itself. Whilst I understand that CG effects made this show possible, they can't hold a candle to the practical effects work of Space 1999, made nearly 20 years earlier, and certainly not to the CG work done on Galactica only four years later. The rest of the cast also don't get a look in here either, largely due to Woodward's guest turn, but setting the episode mostly on a planet means they're all left back on the ship. Seems a weird choice to follow the pilot, where we only met the characters briefly, with an episode where they barely appear. The moral implications aren't explored either. The EarthGov commander feels that the safety of Earth is worth the slaughter of the people, who he likens to skeet shooting, but he never seems to get any comeuppance for it, and the whole thing is wrapped up rather easily. When Gideon learns that Alwyn is going to destroy the EarthGov ship, Gideon is forced to blow up the mines. There's lip service paid to how the miners and the EarthGov will now work together to set up a new mining operation, but it's all a bit pat and done with a bit quick. Episode 3, The Well of Forever, has two main plot strands. Galen convinces Gideon to investigate a mystical convergence at the far edge of known hyperspace, and Matheson is investigated by a telepath to ensure that since the disbanding of the Psycor, he isn't reading people's minds. The episode is another Galen-centric episode, right on the heels of last week's Galen-centric episode, and if the order of these seem off, well, that's because TNT heard them completely out of order. It unbalances the season, especially as there are four episodes near the end Galen doesn't appear in. Best to put him in a bag and shake him up a bit. Galen's Man of Mystery Act is also getting old, and it's only been two episodes. And GMS's character trope of having characters with deep, dark secrets that they keep alluding to, but never actually come out and acknowledge, is wearing thin. The resolution of the story, though, is quite touching. It turns out that the Well of Forever is a mausoleum deep in hyperspace, where various races have left shrines and monuments to their honoured dead. Galen's dead lover, Isabel, was obsessed with the Well of Forever, and she devoted her life to finding it. When she died, Galen promised to take her there. It's never really explained why Galen could find the well when Isabel couldn't, nor is it explained why he couldn't just come clean with Gideon as to his reason for going there. Especially as the well is rumoured to hold the answers to many questions from hundreds of great civilizations, You know, civilizations that may have encountered a certain plague before. As such, it's a bit of a shaggy dog story, padded out with a scene where the Excalibur is literally shagged by an alien jellyfish, and a B-plot, the Matheson story, that doesn't really go anywhere, other than establish that most telepaths are still dickheads. It's a story about dickheads, actually, as Galen is one as well. He seems to have a better relationship with Gideon here than we've seen previously, perhaps due to the screwing around with the episode order. But Gideon's right. Galen should have just told him what this was all about, and Gideon probably would have agreed to go. The Path of Sorrow sees the Excalibur crew at an archaeological dig on a planet that they have learned is a place of great healing. Because Galen took them there, all is not as it seems, and the crew meet a funny alien that heals emotional issues rather than physical ones, because we can't find a plague cure four episodes in. The crew then start having flashback to times in their lives that still haunt them. 
Gideo sees a shadow ship blow his starship up before the shadow war. Matheson recalls being a psychop, and Galen sees his lover Isabel and the promise he made her on his deathbed. Presumably we should have seen this episode before the last episode, because we've already seen the end of this story. I mean, alternatively, this could be intentional, given JMS's storytelling style, but it seems unlikely. Gideon's story is clearly groundwork for the future, and presumably would have played into the overall story arc had the series continued past its first 13 episodes. With no payoff forthcoming, it kind of just sits there. Galen's flashback is also robbed of some of its potency, given that we've already seen the payoff. It's left to Matheson's story to carry the can, and as a Babylon 5 fan, it's easily the best one, throwing some light on the telepath wars. It's a talky, character-driven episode that, had the show carried on, would probably have been a game-changer when viewed in retrospect. As it is, it's a bit of a time-waster. And that's how I felt about Crusade, generally. A waste of time. I got bored here and decided to skip ahead to the first five episodes, the ones made before TNT started sticking their oar in. Now I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Andrew, you're thinking, how can you skip ahead to the first five episodes? Well, lovely listener, as mentioned, TNT didn't like the show, and thus erred the episodes they had a hand in first, leaving the shows that should have kicked off the series until the end. Racing the Night was therefore meant to be the first episode, so watching it here feels like we're getting a massive info dump of things we already know. It's also pretty funny in that there are reams of expositional dialogue introducing those two characters like they're new, and the opening with Captain Gideon dreaming of how he first came to be in charge of this mission is flatly contradictory to what we saw in Warzone. F. Racing the Night sees the crew investigating a planet that may possess clues to curing the plague. It's nice to see the show actually focusing on its premise instead of wanting to be Star Trek. And it's nice to report that this episode is quite good. Oh sure, the CG's terrible, but the actual story is okay and makes it seem like the quest to find a cure is, you know, urgent. The characters all work well, although there is some inconsistencies thanks to the altered running order. The ending, that the alien race also have this plague and are in suspended animation until a cure can be found, is interesting. And if it leans a tad too much into all questions and no answers, well, it was supposed to be the first episode of a show that ran for five years. The ending also has a decent moral problem for Gideon, showing that he won't kill others to find a cure for Earth, although he's warned to keep that in mind and see how high and mighty he is in five years if a cure still hasn't been found. Sadly, the follow-up episode, The Memory of War, is a bit dull, and The Visitors from Down the Street is a subpar X-Files passage. Each night I Dream of Home closed out the series. Well, the order I watch them in anyway, and it's actually pretty good. Two Babylon 5 actors make guest appearances, and the quest for a cure actually feels real and organic, as opposed to a side quest the characters are on in between doing other stuff. Ultimately, though, Crusade is an infuriating show. It's almost good, with the potential to be great, and there's always room in the TV landscape for a starship-bound science fiction space opera. However, it never really gets off the ground. Obviously, the network meddling didn't help, and the fact there are about four different viewing orders for the damn thing doesn't make matters easier. 
casual viewers will be lost by the constant repetition of dialogue and character beats, as well as the change in uniforms, which, depending on the viewer order, make it look like the characters can't decide what to wear from day to day. Fans will likewise grow impatient with the constant repetition of dialogue and character beats. Crusade never settles down long enough to learn what it is, isn't, nor what it could be. It's the problem with launching a serialised show that is killed off before it even gets to Earth. It doesn't really matter how good or bad the show is, if nothing is ever going to be resolved. Crusade also suffers from being a Babylon 5 sequel. The whole point of Babylon 5 was that it had a beginning, a middle and an end. Story done. When that series concluded, it was over. Everything else after that, the TV movies, the fifth season of the show itself, and, yes, Crusade, feel like unnecessary add-ons. Having Crusade be in the Babylon 5 universe isn't the problem. Having it be so closely tied to that show is. The other issue is the overall cheapness. Crusade looks worse than Babylon 5, and I've no idea why. Now... Having a budget that can't keep up with your ambition is no bad thing. Doctor Who has lasted over 50 years and has always had more moxie than money. But Crusade looks awfully bad in places with ill-rendered landscapes and muddy visuals. It's a shame that this was the legacy of Babylon 5. A misguided final season, some shoddy telly movies and a failed spin-off. As overall, Babylon 5 could have been a contender. And Crusade, likewise, had potential. The writing was mostly there. The cast were gelling well. And the themes now seem timelier than ever. I think if Straczynski were to strip away all the Babylon 5 references and pitch this today, it'd actually be better received. The Babylon Project started as a dream-given form. It ended as a restless night's sleep. Okay, before we get into delving into the email sack, I just wish to throw out a thank you to Dan Doater, who sent me a package. I like a good package. Um, these little paperback books are some of my grails, because they're probably really easy to find in other places. But over here, the Marvel Pocketbook series, or the Lancer books, or anything like that, Treasury Editions, anything that didn't get a big distribution outside of the United States tends to be something I covered. Like, you know, the paperback reprints of Hulk and Doctor Strange and all of that stuff. And Dan sent me a package of three different paperback books. One is a Whitman paperback Superman Smashes the Secret of the Mad Dictator. Director, sorry, not Dictator. Smashing the Mad Dictator would probably be funny. This is a prose novel, presumably aimed at children, but it has lots of panels in it. Like, there's a comic book panel on every page, but instead of word balloons, it's prose. Originally owned by Carolyn Sanford. 
Hello, Carolyn, if you're still out there. Don't know who you are, but thank I am now in possession of your book. I'm very grateful I am too. And then two Lancer paperbacks, the Fantastic Four Collector's Album, The Greatest Answer, The Greatest Adventures Plus Never Before Revealed Secrets, which seems to be reprints of early issues of the Fantastic Four. I've not actually flipped through them yet. But they're actually they're, it's really good how they, they flip between landscape and portrait, depending on the panel size. That's really cool. It's Oh, it's the Submariner issue. Oh, excellent. And then, you know, the Mole Man stuff. It looks like there's some editor. But that oh, looks really cool. It's got a really nice cover. And then the Fantastic Four Return guest star Submariner. So they were really plugging the Submariner at this point. Apparently it's mind-expanding. Syracuse, New York. So apparently a location can, can tell you what they think. Yeah. And again, this is the story where the final victory of Doctor Doom. Uh, again, it flips between uh, landscape and portrait as you're reading the book. And they're in black and white, so you can really admire Kirby's artwork. And these are really cool. Uh, it was really nice to get these in the post. So um, apparently they had Lancer volumes 1 and 9. So it, numbers 2 through 8... I have to now have a look at what they are. So very much a big thank you to Dan Doherty for that. Because they were a lovely surprise. He didn't let me know they were coming. So they were a pleasant surprise as they dropped through my letterbox. And um, they can't be cheap to send to me. Because post-Brexit, apparently postage has gone up on everything. Cheers, Boris. So uh, thank you very much for them, Dan. They're very much appreciated. Okay, shall we delve into the email sack? Robert McCarthy's emailed in. I'm a total fanboy for the Eric Larson Sinister Six stuff. I kept reading for Spider-Man for years afterward, but that was the oh my god, it's out, get it now era of Spider-Man. So if that's a hint that you want me to cover Eric Larson stuff, when I'm done with McFarlane, I'll give it some thought. I may do some random stuff for a bit. You know, I've not decided yet. We'll finish McFarlane first and see how we go. And, um... That, that, that's, that's it. Bag's empty. Nothing else in there. Oh well, guess I got an early night. Akidscomics at virginmedia.com If you want to email in, please email in. I feel lonely and bereft. Should play the David Banner music here, shouldn't we? David Banner sad Hulk music. Tinkly, tinkly piano music of sadness. Hmm. Oh well, see you next time. Take care. Everything's going to be fine. Allegedly. Bye-bye.